Hey, Scene Vault listeners, are you a NASCAR collector? Well, we've got two great magazines for you. First up, we've got the 75 Greatest Drivers. Last season, NASCAR added 25 drivers to its Greatest Drivers list to celebrate their diamond anniversary, and we partnered with them to help tell their legendary tales. This 116-page magazine is packed with the stories that made each of these drivers the greatest we have ever seen. Printed in full color on glossy paper and delivered to fans inside a poly bag to protect its contents, this magazine will sit on the coffee tables of NASCAR fans for years to come. There are also several different covers to collect, including unique designs for Richard Petty, Dale Earnhardt, Jeff Gordon, and more. We've also got a few remaining copies of the 75th Anniversary Magazine, featuring hundreds of pages of photos, profiles, iconic stories, and much, much more covering every single year of NASCAR. Both of these are shipping in high-quality poly bags to protect your collector's item. Get yours today at dailydownforce.com shop. That's dailydownforce.com shop. Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at polepositionmag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item, backed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. Hey, y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They yeah. had been, they had been yeah. around the block a time or two. What's so, the first deal they built, I bet? No, no. You know, you, I think they were, they had, the, the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this, this souped-up car, and he, he complained that the government gave him these piece-of-crap, cheapo cars and that, that were really no match, but he thought he was doing pretty good. And then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappeared. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And it, it, as he said, it was a game of chicken and I was the chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually he was the guy who, who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy still when Junior got tangled up in a, in a barbed wire fence. <laughs> So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Vault Podcast.
With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. Dale was so mad after that weekend because when he was out there signing autographs, nobody would go to his trailer. They were coming over to mine to buy teddy bears. So I said to the guys, I said, we'll get up at 7, we'll, we'll meet, we'll eat, we'll be at the racetrack, right? We were all in, and there's 50 cars in line going through inspection. My first disappointment of 1994 is trust the people. The day NASCAR and all of us associated in any way with NASCAR forget its past, that's the day we don't have any future. Hello, everyone. I'm Steve Wade. And my name is Rick Houston. And welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast. <laughs> Steve, I got to tell you, man. I know what you're going to say. Uh, we took Adam to Appalachian State University up in Boone, North Carolina on Friday. And Steve, we had been up there a few times before to get him signed up and to get him registered and to look at the apartment and everything. Well, this time we took him up to App State and we took him to Boone. And this time, we left him there. <laughs> I'm just not real sure still how I feel about that. Well, Rick, you've been pretty anxious about that moment for a long time. Now, I think you're holding up pretty well. I'll be honest with you. I got through the day pretty well. But then when I got back to our house that afternoon, it looked kind of empty. And let's just say that it was definitely a lot quieter <laughs> without him here. And then the next morning, and this is what killed me. This is what absolutely killed me. Otis is his buddy. Adam and Otis are buddies. The next morning, Otis came into my office here, my computer room here. He laid down on the ground with his nose right in front of the door to our carport. Like he was waiting on Adam to get home. And Steve, that was the most pitiful sight I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> I can just imagine Rick <laughs> Poor Otis. <laughs> well, then Steve, in all seriousness, whenever I think about the grin that Adam had on his face all day, Friday, basically the entire time that we were moving him in and how excited he was. App had a day where all the clubs could make their presentations and everything. And Adam bounced around that club presentation thing for I don't know how long and he called Janie and was talking about oh I went to the student government I went to the hockey club and I went to the rugby club and I went to this club I went to the swim club I went to the tennis club so it's hard to look around the house and, and moan and groan about how empty it is as opposed to hearing the excitement in his voice and how forward he is looking to spend in his first year up at app man I yeah, it, it was a little bittersweet, but that kid is going to rule the world someday, and I cannot wait to see what happens next. Well, I'm telling you right now, Adam, Adam is looking forward to being a college boy. 
You know, I called him up just the other day. We've arranged for a cake party up in his apartment. Going to invite about 50 people coming up on this Saturday. So he's headed in the right direction as far as I'm concerned. You want to come on up, Rick? Steve, that ain't funny, man. <laughs> you, you are absolutely killing me. You are absolutely killing me. <laughs> now, Jesse, on the other hand, Jesse is going to be sticking around the house. So we're not exactly completely empty nesters. Jesse's going to be taking some more classes in his graphic design course. And honestly, Steve, I believe that this next year is going to be good for Adam. It's also going to be good for Jesse. And let's hope it's good for you too, Rick. (laughs) (laughs) Steve, this week in our first segment, we are going to share the first of what will be three installments of the interview that I did with Kevin LePage. And Steve, this week, Kevin talks about how he first got started in the sport. Like so many other people, it's a family business. And then he talks about moving from his native Vermont to go Bush Series racing and sponsorship from the Vermont Teddy Bear Company. And Steve, that is one of the coolest non-traditional sponsors this sport has ever seen. And then when we break down the interview with Kevin, we're going to talk about some of the other kind of unusual sponsors this sport has had over the years. I opened that up for a comment on Twitter and man, the floodgates opened. Oh, I have no doubt. <laughs> there have been some Lulu sponsorships in this sport. Ooh. Finally, Steve, Kevin tells the story of what was a very rocky relationship that he faced when he first moved south. Now, Steve, can you imagine that somebody in racing having a rocky relationship? (laughs) 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 Then in our second segment, we're going to go back to the August 19th, 1982 issue of Grand National Scene. And even though it was an off week issue with no coverage of a specific event, It was still pretty packed. You had a column in which you picked out the members of your own race team. And we're going to kind of pick out the members of our own race teams today. Sounds good to me. All right. Now, finally, in this issue, I came across a photo. And when I saw the photo, it brought back so many memories. And Steve, I'm finally going to get to tell my Chase Whitaker, Al Laquasto, Schaefer beer story. (laughs) (laughs) The world is waiting. (laughs) (laughs) And this week, we also have new Patreon support from Charles Hall and somebody who goes by the name A-D-I-E-W-U-N. So I'm going to go with 81. (laughs) There we go. (laughs) (laughs) All right. 81. And We also have increased support from Doug Thompson and Justin Hall. So Charles and 80 and Doug and Justin, thank y'all. Thank you all from the bottom of my heart. Your support means everything to us because without it, we would not be able to do this podcast. We would not be able to spend the time that we do on it in researching and doing the interviews and putting the notes together and recording it and editing it. That support is absolutely crucial. And again, without it, we wouldn't be able to do this podcast. So if you can, please support us on Patreon, support us on PayPal. If you can do a monthly show of support, that address is patreon.com slash the same vault podcast. Or if you would prefer just to do a one-time show of support, 
you can do that via paypal.me slash the same vault podcast. And also just as a reminder, this podcast is not associated in any way with American city business journals, owner of the same brand. Steve and I just so happened to work there once upon a time. And that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> this has been a recording. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Kevin, I guess we'll go ahead and start from the very beginning. How did you get started in racing? Well, that's a good question, Rick. Um, back when I was a kid, and I say kid, one to three years old, my dad used to drag race up in Vermont. Okay. My mom used to say I always cried every weekend or every day on the weekend, whatever day it was that he went to the racetrack that I didn't go. Um, and as soon as that car would come back, I'd run outside and I'd get in this in the driver's seat and just hold on to the steering wheel and, you know, make noise like I was driving a race car. So, um, that was the beginning and, uh, where I fell in love with race cars back in the, uh, few, la- few years later, um, one of the local racetracks up there, Catamount Speedway needed wreckers, you know, to be on the infield, take care of the wrecks and stuff. And so, uh, my dad had a gas station back then and a couple of wreckers. So he would go up on Saturday and, uh, you know, be in the infield, tow cars when it was an accident. Well, I used to sneak in the pit area by laying behind the seat between the <laughs> seat and the cab yeah, of the wrecker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then once I got inside, then I would uh, get out and sit in the front seat. Well, that happened for about a year, and then all of a sudden I get caught. And, you know, they threw me out, and I had to go into the grandstands. So as a kid, I would go to the highest part of the grandstands and turn one and sit there and watch the races. I wouldn't sit at all. I'd stand right as far up as I could get there and just watch the drivers, um, how they would enter the racetrack and how they you know, would handle the race cars. Several years later, um, 75, my uh, dad bought a race car for my older brother. He raced for, from 75 to the spring of 1980 that spring he got married so uh, <laughs> my dad said okay. uh, he said well i'll tell you what you're gonna do is we're gonna let you run the big races the 100 and 200 300 lap races and kevin's gonna start his career on the 35 lappers so my brother ran probably three or four races that year and uh, my first race was at uh, at catamount third mile asphalt i'm out there practicing first time ever in a race car and my dad's on uh, in the pit stands, you know, watching me. And all of a sudden, uh, my dad gets this tap on the shoulder from a Ford driver from the lower division. And he's uh, watching me practice. And he said to my dad, he goes, that's your race car driver. My dad said, yeah, we're going to give him a chance, you know, we'll see how he's doing. And he said, your son's been out there for 20 laps. And I've been timing him every lap. And he hasn't varied a tenth. First time in a race car. He's got natural ability. So that afternoon or that early evening, I went out and uh, won my qualifying event and finished 10th in the feature. And Sunday morning, my dad fired my brother, and I became a full-time race car driver. So I know that you were doing – you eventually started doing some Bush North stuff. I know that you were running the American-Canadian tour. At what point did the decision to move into the Bush Series South come about? Well, I think it was um, 
my dad raced um, till nineteen end of season nineteen eighty four when he got divorced and he shut the team down. I was hired from uh, uh, from a team in Maine to go drive for him. The second year I was there, um, season ended, and I went to the race shop for something, and all of a sudden there's this new car in the garage area. And I said to the guys, I said, what are you, what are you building here? And they said, well, you're not supposed to know, but we're, we're going to Atlanta for an ARCA race. And I was like, really? He goes, yeah. I said, who's driving? He goes, you are. <laughs> I said, okay. So yeah. uh, they, they converted one of our cars to an ARCA car. We went to Atlanta, and I believe this had to be uh, 1986. And um, we go down, we blew up practice. So they uh, trying to find a motor, and we finally found it, found one from James Hilton. And uh, we rented it, and we went out and qualified like 36, I think it was. Well, back then, they took cars away, like provisionals, and we were the first car, last car bumped out of the field. So James felt so bad that we didn't make the race, he offered up the driver's seat. So they, uh, he went to ARCA, and ARCA says, well, since he didn't um, practice a lot, we won't let him start the race but we will let him relief drive for you. So now, what year would this have been? Nineteen eighty-six. Okay, All right. Nineteen eighty-six. So um, I, uh, I sat in a car uh, during the anthem to make sure everything fit. The only thing we had to do is lower the steering wheel a little bit, and so I was ready to go once the first caution came out. Well, lap one there was a caution, shocker, <laughs> right in Arca, right. Uh, so here comes James comes down pit road he jumps out of the car i get in we didn't finish everything so i go out because we didn't want to lose a lap come down they open up the net and finish all the seat belts and everything i do and all of a sudden here comes james on the right hand through the driver's or passenger side window and he looks at me or yells at me he goes look you young kid he said just go out there and do a good job he said these guys spent a lot of money i said okay so we took off started dead last um next caution came out at lap 89 I was running fifth. First time in an ARCA car. Wow. First time in a mile and a half. Yeah. Uh, raced against that day, Alan Kowicki, Grant Adcox, Harry Gant, and I was ahead of all three of them. Wow. We come down Pitt Road, um, and uh, we changed tires. Well, when they dropped the jack, I took off because I saw the cars going by me, right? And I thought I was getting lapped, right? Yeah. Well, what it was, it was the back of the field still going by. The leaders came down, and I was fifth. I didn't realize there were still yeah, yeah. 40 cars behind <laughs> me, right? So when they dropped the yeah. jack, I, I jumped on the gas and um, spun the rear tires and, and broke an axle, and, oh. our, and our day was done. Um, I think that was the point when I decided that, you know, I could probably make it here and, and you know, down south. Well, we went back home in uh, that winter. Uh, we built some more cars and um, ran first five races of 1987. The in team, Arca? Uh, or? No, in, in, in Bush North. Okay. ACT, I guess okay. it was yeah, at yeah, the time, yeah. 87. Well, after the fifth race, I got fired, and Ricky Craven was hired. 
to replace me, I um, had to start my own team. So from 87 um, all the way through 1993, you know, it was LePage Motorsports. You know, we did everything, you know, on our own. During the end of 93, halfway through 93, through the end, Ken Squire came to me and he goes, Kevin, he says, um, you've done as much as you can do here. It's time to go south. So uh, he got me two pit passes for Rockingham to go down and interview with teams. And he had a list of people that were looking for drivers. I came down and interviewed a few teams. And that's where the beginning of me making a decision to come south. Well, when you did come south and you ran your first season uh, in Bush South in 94, you were still with your own team, correct? Uh, yes, but – uh, 94 was my first year of, yeah. of being here, yeah. uh, with the Vermont teddy bear company. Yeah. And, um, I ran my own team from 94 to, um, 96. Now, did you have any other opportunities or were you just more comfortable on your own? Uh, in, in 93, when I came, when I met with people down in Rockingham, um, there was one new team that was being established. Um, they were out of Pennsylvania. There were a couple of lawyers, uh, the number one car. We had two meetings with them, one at the racetrack, and the second one was down in their office in Pennsylvania. There was two of us they were picking from. I was one choice, and Mike Stefanik was a second choice. When we got through the meeting, the second meeting, they called me on the way home and said, I think we're going to go with Mike. Um no disrespect for you, but Mike has won championships in the modified, and we believe Mike will be able to do you know get sponsors. I said, okay, no problem. So on our way home from Pennsylvania, my wife and I were just sitting there saying, you know what? Why don't we try to put our own deal together? Vermont Teddy Bear, their corporations in Shelburne, Vermont. The owner at the time, John Sorrentino, was a customer at my dad's gas station. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to pitch John this idea and see if it'll work. But John came in about a week later, and I pitched a deal to him, and he fell in love with it. And that's where LePage Motorsports was formed with the help of the Vermont Teddy Bear Company. And and, uh, we purchased the assets from uh, Dick Bound, uh, Jib Bound's equipment, came came south and started our race team. Did you have any kind of hesitation in the Vermont Teddy Bear Company? Because that was out of the norm at the time. Um, But I'll say this also. It's been 25 years since a Vermont Teddy Bear car was on the racetrack, and it's still recognized. Oh, for sure. Um, Big time. You know, the thing is, is, uh, it was such a unique sponsor. Yeah. And... We went to Richmond, the first Richmond race, and it was a cold, rainy Friday. The whole weekend was kind of crappy, you know, weather-wise, but uh, we we still got the race in. Um, Sunday's paper came out, and we were the most visited souvenir trailer on Saturday at the racetrack. Um, The teddy bear, it's amazing at how many bear collectors are out there. And each Vermont teddy bear was handmade. So these collectors would come in and they would go through our allotment of bears to find the one that they wanted. And they weren't cheap. 
I mean, they were an expensive quality bear. We sold so many bears, so many outfits, <laughs> and um, and Racer Ted. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen Racer Ted, but he's over on that shelf over there. Racer Ted with a helmet sold for $130. Wow. Bill Simpson made me some helmets. Um, and He we, actually made helmets? Yes. yes. No, they were kidding. a little small black helmet yeah. that went over the bear's head. Yeah. And um, we, if we had Racer Ted on the trailer, we would sell it out. And then uh, we went to Dover um, that season, and Dover was a unique way they set up souvenir trailers. They would take their five or six large trailers, Earnhardt, Wallace, Labonte, um, and they would put these trailers in strategic areas. And then the rest of the trailers' fill-ins were lottery. So it didn't make a difference if you were Kevin LePage with the Vermont Teddy Bear trailer or you were Tony Stewart, you know, with the Shell trailer. I had the same draw, you know. Well, we ended up getting um, pulled right next door to Dale Earnhardt. Here he is with a 45-foot trailer, and I'm there with a 36-foot, basically a race car hauler that we converted into a souvenir trailer. Dale was so mad after that weekend because when he was out there signing autographs, nobody would go to his trailer. They were coming over to mine to buy teddy bears. <laughs> and he said to the people up at Dover that he will never, ever be parked next to me again. <laughs> and uh, ironically, uh, that year at Dover, that same weekend, we were, uh, we were at Dover, and I was getting ready to qualify for the bush race. Dale comes over and he goes, um, hey, my uh, daughter, uh, Taylor, plays, has teased with her dolls. He said, I think it'd be cool to get a teddy bear, you know, to join in. And I said, sure. I said, what color? You know, they have brown, black, white, champagne. He goes, I, I think champagne would be a good color. I said, all right. So uh, we go out to the souvenir trailer that night and get get a bear. And I don't remember what kind of outfit we did, but we put an outfit on it. Well, during qualifying, I'd scrape the wall. So the next morning, you know, I'm laying on the spoiler, you know, watching the guys re-decal the right side of the car. And all of a sudden, I feel this arm around me, and it's Dale. He goes, you get this car fixed? I said, ah, it's no big deal. It's just decals, you know, a little bit of, little dent here, but nothing serious. And he goes, all right, good luck today. And he was racing in the bush race that day. Well, as he's walking away, I said, Dale, you got a second? So I walked over pit wall and I grabbed my teddy bear, uh, his teddy bear, and um, I brought the bag over to him and he opened it up and he looked down in there and he looked at me and he, and he goes, you didn't forget me? He says, after this, I said, no, Dale. I mean, you would have swore I gave the guy a million dollars. So um, that morning uh, before the race, we had the driver's meeting and back then we used to sit on the 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 infield bank because they didn't have a, a room big enough for us. And so we're sitting there, my wife and I up against the fence and all of a sudden Dale comes up. He puts one hand on my wife's knee and one hand on my knee. And he said, I think there's room here for me. Right. And he sat right in between us, never said a word, but sat in between us and our friendship became stronger, you know, from that point on. Going into 94, your first full season, what were your expectations like? Um, I think my expectations were, um, 
after Atlanta, I could compete down here. Uh, you know, I'm just a race car driver. You know, I'm going to have to uh, learn uh, the racetracks and stuff. Um, the biggest disappointment, uh, there was two of them. One was the equipment I bought. When I came down and looked at the equipment from Bounds, there were three race cars, two completed cars and a chassis. And on the back wall behind the chassis was all the boxes to put this car together. Well, we go down in Daytona and tested. And when we got back, Dick Bound was our team manager because he supposedly knew the ropes and he was going to help me my first year. We go down and test it, and when we come back, he goes, you know, he said, I think you'd be better off to build that new chassis. I said, Dick, we got six weeks before Daytona. He goes, well, he said, Jeff Hensley will put the body on for you, and, and you know, we'll, we'll be able to get it done. I said, all right. Well, that Monday morning, we start putting the car together, getting a suspension on it and all that stuff. So I'd go to the back wall, and I'd get a box empty. Where's the brake pedals, Dick? Oh, well, we must have used them. I'd go to the next box for brake calipers. Where's the brake calipers? Oh, yeah, we used them on another car. I'd go get an oil tank box. Oh, yeah, that's right. We got in an accident. We needed to. So the boxes were fake. It was a way to sell me at the race team for the price he charged me. So we get all this car ready. We send it up to Hensley's. He hangs a body. Now, this is the Daytona car. This is Daytona car. Okay. He hangs a body, comes back. I am the body guy. I do all the body work, got all the templates in there. We uh, go to Daytona, and we're, we're on our way down. And I said, Dick, what time's the garage open on Saturday? You know, because we're always down there a week before the race, right? And he says, oh, usually about 9 o'clock. It's pretty laid back, you know. I said, all right. So I said to the guys, I said, we'll get up at 7, we'll, we'll meet, we'll eat, we'll be at the racetrack, right, for 9. We roll in, and there's 50 cars in line going through inspection. The garage opened at 6. <laughs> so we were the last car to go through inspection. Oh, man. Here's this beautiful teal and purple race car going through the line. And Carl Simmons, I remember it just as I'm looking at you right now. Lays a long template over the roof and over the car, and the roof's an inch too low. An inch. An inch too low. Not a quarter of an inch. Not a quarter of an inch. (laughs) An inch. And uh, so he says, who hanged the body on this? I said, Jeff Hensley. He goes, blah, blah, blah. Get it out of here. So my wife go gets Jeff, because now he's working for uh, Hensley's with uh, Jim Bound driving. And I go to NASCAR and I said, what do we got to do? And they said, you got to fix this thing. So Jeff comes over. He goes, well, he said, I talked to NASCAR. You know, we'll, we'll get it fixed. You know, we got a couple days before we, you know, before the race. I said, all right. So he opens a hood and, and he looks. First thing he says, he goes, who did the uh, duck work? I mean, it's beautiful. Brand new car. And my Duckworth guy said, I did. He goes, well, sucks to be you. He said, you got to cut it all out. So you need this, 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 do all this, and it'll get it down. So we worked, and we worked, and, you know, changing ductwork and cutting the door, all the nose bars and stuff. Finally, NASCAR comes over. He said, how close are you? And I said, well, we're getting there. He said, well, you need to get this is the last practice. You need it on the racetrack. You're not going to qualify. 
So I go on the racetrack, make one lap, going down the back shit, second lap, motor blows up. Wayne Eanes comes over from H&E because he was billing our motors, and he said, what happened? I said, motor blew up. He said, yeah, but it did. He said, now you need to come get all your crap and get the hell off my property. I'm like, what? what are you talking about, Wayne? He goes, I don't much appreciate you going to another engine builder. I said, I, you're my main guy. He goes, no. He says, you're getting the motor done from TNL. And he says, you're out, done. Pay me my money and get the stuff out of here. Long story short, our race shop, which we rented from Dick Bound, phone line was tied into the house. And every time the phone would ring, they would pick it up in the house and they would eavesdrop on our conversations. So when Lloyd called me from TNL, he says, I'm billing motors again. And he says, I'll bill you a new V6 and I'll only charge you for the parts and the labor because I want to get my name out. Well, any young team, new driver would sit there and say, that's a hell of a deal because back then, if you paid 15000 for parts, you paid 15000 more for labor. So it was $30,000. I was going to save myself fifteen grand. And, well, um, either Dick or his daughter was the one that called up H&E and said I was making an, another engine deal. So, uh, long story, uh, we went up and got our parts and, and – Lloyd took our Daytona motor apart, and, and basically um, they sabotaged my motor. They didn't, weren't going to last. So we, T&L came down with a motor. We had another motor in, and uh, I was first car out at Daytona with a total of, I think, a lap and a half of practice. And um, that was the, my first disappointment of 1994 is trusting people. Yeah. Um, after that whole ordeal, um, the com comments were, welcome to NASCAR. And um, I was like, well, fool me once. Shame on me. <laughs> You're not doing the second time. Yeah. Um, my second disappointment of 1994 was uh, missing seven races. Um, we struggled at a lot of racetracks, and a lot of it had to do with the equipment that we had purchased. Um, we were fastest heck over at at martinsville um real fast um changed the we had back then we used to qualify with qualifying oil then we changed the race oil we ran i think 10 laps and blew the motor up that's after we broke a re-ring gear in practice from old stuff i came back and i said to dick i said you've ever blown an engine in this car he go oh yeah we've blown like six of them we never could figure it out so I took every oil line out of that car and cut it in half. I mean, lengthwise, not sideways, to see if there was something wrong with the oil line. Well, come to find out the oil tank they had in that car um, only had two two or three little half-inch holes up on top for the return. So once you put 2050 oil in it, it was not enough holes for the oil to go down and it would get air in the line and it starved the engine. Um, so there was a lot of things that went on in 1994 that hinder our performance. It was n nothing that I did. It was what I purchased. At the end of the last race of the year, or Saturday, Sunday morning, I was moving out of Dick Bounds' shop and moving over to Richard Lasseter's shop. 
Dick was saying, you're not taking my stuff. And I'm like, I'm taking the stuff. I own the stuff. You'll get paid. Now, this was after Daytona? No, or? after the last race of 1994. Okay, all right. Okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, I just couldn't see all my personal information being out to the world, um, you know, with phone lines. I mean, we actually had the phone lines disconnected, and uh, they called the phone company back up and, and had it rewired because it was their property. And I just like, you know what? I don't, I don't need to be here. Now, where was Dick's shop at? Was it down here or was it up north? In Asheboro. Asheboro. Okay. Asheboro, right. yeah. So, the Vermont Teddy Bear Company. I loved that sponsor. <laughs> <laughs> now, I don't have a Vermont Teddy Bear or anything like that, but I just thought it was a cool deal and more exposure for the sport. And it was certainly out of the ordinary. It wasn't the first out of the ordinary sponsor in NASCAR, but I will say this, a lot of people still remember that sponsor to this day, even though it's been 25 years since it last appeared on a race car, talking to Kevin about the Vermont teddy bear company and his relationship with the company and how successful they were with that program. It kind of got me to thinking back on some of the other sponsors, some of the other non-traditional backers in the sport. I put the question out there on Twitter and Twitterville did not disappoint. <laughs> never does. Rick never does. CJ Martin tweeted. This is easy. Kevin's next sponsor after Vermont teddy bear, because I was a big fan of Kevin's. I actually had to rep it on a shirt and hat. I picked up at Nazareth. Other people had beer and car stuff supporting their drivers. And I had farmer's choice fertilizer. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know where fertilizer comes from, Rick. <laughs> oh. This show half the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know that you remember the Slender U figure salon car in the late 1980s. I could take you know the difference between them and other fitness places was. You lay down on something that resembled a bed, a leather bed or a leather couch, and that couch or bed was mechanical, and it did the exercises for you. All you had to do was lay there. I mean, lift one leg, lift the other leg. You know, they didn't stay with this very long. <laughs> so all you got to do is lay on a couch, and the couch exercises for you? Yeah. The, Where the do machine. I sign up? <laughs> well, the machine did the work. I don't think they're in business any longer, but <laughs> that was the idea. Catered to ladies. Underalls was an associate sponsor on Sterling Marlin's car back in the late 1980s. <laughs> Underalls. There you go. All right. Cartoon Network had several different paint schemes. My personal favorite was the Flintstones car. I loved that car when it first came out and Steve Grissom was driving it. That was a cool car. Molly Black Gold <laughs> was on Travis Carter's car when Jimmy Spencer drove it. Our buddy Matt Miles asked what it even was, and I couldn't tell him. I did not know what Molly Black Gold was. I did a search online, and there was nothing, I mean nothing, about Molly Black Gold, the product. <laughs> the closest thing I could find were gold dust and Black Molly Goldfish. <laughs> <laughs> and as unusual as these sponsors are, I didn't think of Goldfish Company 
<laughs> sponsored Jamie Spencer and Travis Carter's car. So I texted Travis and I asked him about it. And he said that Molly black gold was a fuel and oil additive. And he very helpfully added that they didn't have any money. <laughs> Imagine that. Yeah. But then my buddy, Chase Whitaker and uh, Chase Whitaker plays into this podcast more than once in this episode. Trust me. But Chase Whitaker tweeted photos of Richard Childress and Donnie Allison with Molly black gold cars in the mid to late 1970s. And then Randy Murphy countered with a Molly black gold car that Benny Parsons raced in 1974. I never saw that car to be honest with you. And, uh, I never knew what Molly black gold was, but apparently it wasn't very wealthy company. <laughs> <laughs> Molly black gold being a fuel and oil additive. Well, of course we've seen those kinds of sponsors in the sport before, but evidently Molly black gold had at least some money in the 1970s. <laughs> but then ran out by the time they got to Travis Carter and Jimmy Spencer. <laughs> Dale Jarrett had Coates and Clark sewing products. Never saw that one either. I did not remember that one. Uh -uh. Circus Circus in Las Vegas sponsored Benny Parsons at one point, and Kill Yarbrough had first National City Travelers checks. Yeah, that was after the days of Holly Farms poultry yeah. on the junior's car. Ashton Lewis had the Civil Air Patrol in the Bush series. And then of course there were companies like Crisco and slim fast and Hollywood video Boudreaux's butt paste. That was my favorite <laughs> <laughs> legs, pantyhose, spam, Waylon Jennings, Hulk Hogan, clabber girl, baking powder, three stooges, beer, <laughs> Kyle Petty's boot barn, the PBA, the NHL, the NFL Players Association, Major League Baseball, Baywatch nightclubs, lovable bras, Ramsey's condoms, <laughs> and Kim Kardashian. <laughs> and Steve, I think Viagra goes without saying, and the less we say it about extends, the better. <laughs> you know something? I think Lake Speed had that spam sponsorship. And I first saw that blue and yellow car at Daytona for the Daytona 500. And that really set off a buzz in the media center. We came up with a slogan for Lake to use about Spam, his sponsor. And that slogan was, Spam is a good sponsor for our car because we don't know what's in it either. <laughs> <laughs> now, the most unusual one I saw over the years was Buddy Arrington showed up with a sponsorship on his car that read, Billy Carper RN registered nurse and i never had a chance to ask buddy what that was all about but when you have a person just one individual listed on the side of a car as a sponsor that was highly unusual now say that name again billy carper rn we're going to find the answer to that question steve we're going to do some digging on that one buddy <laughs> we might just have billy on a podcast at some point <laughs> Steve, Kevin said that one weekend at Dover, his souvenir rig was parked next to Dale Earnhardt's and that Dale was mad because he was out there trying to sign autographs, but most everybody was over at Kevin's trailer buying teddy bears. Now, I, I yeah. don't know about that story. I'm thinking maybe you get Dale's autograph, then go buy the teddy bear or go buy the teddy bear because the line at Dale's trailer, I don't know. 
I don't know about that story in particular. I still think, though, that having Dale Earnhardt signing autographs next to the teddy bear rig, <laughs> that's going to create good business for the teddy bears. That same weekend, Dale comes to Kevin in the garage, and he asks if he can get a teddy bear for Taylor and Nicole. You think that Dale could have bought one or two, but hey, who am I to say if he should have got a freebie? <laughs> <laughs> of course, Kevin says, sure, absolutely. But then in qualifying, he damages his car a little bit, and he has to help repair it. But then he gives Dale the bear the next day and Dale can't believe that he didn't forget it after banging his car up and Kevin and his wife are waiting on the driver's meeting to start at Dover and Dale comes over and makes room for himself between Kevin and his wife. <laughs> so Dale Earnhardt evidently didn't mind making room for himself on and off the racetrack. <laughs> Kevin bought cars and equipment from Dick bound to get started in the Bush series. And uh, let's just say that they were not on the same page. And Steve, without also talking to Dick, who I believe is still living at the age of 94, without talking to Dick to get his side of the story, it's just not appropriate for us to discuss who is right and who is wrong in the situation or to give an opinion one way or the other. But it did bring to mind a question Has there ever been anybody in the sport? that you just could not get along with. Now, I don't know if you want to name names or anything, but has there ever been somebody in the sport that you just could not get on the same page with? Not among the drivers and other competitors. I got along with them just fine. But there were a few members of the media that uh, really didn't fit my taste, meaning I just thought they did things the wrong way. So I basically tried to ignore them, and that worked. Stan, I know this may come as a shock to you. <laughs> <laughs> but there were a few of those along the way for me. <laughs> <laughs> I've laughed about this for years, but I actually do have an outline for a NASCAR murder mystery that I started <laughs> years ago. Golly. <laughs> 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 but I kind of hit a roadblock because there were too many people that I wanted to kill off. <laughs> All you had to do was create a serial killer. <laughs> well, in that case, I, you know, I did consider that too, but then I couldn't decide who I wanted to make the twisted demented killer <laughs> because there were a lot of candidates for that role yeah. too. Yeah. You had a wide choice when it came to that. That's for sure. Still there. If you want to start it today. <laughs> Hello, Scene Vault fans. This is Brian from Speedway Screens, and if you're enough of a NASCAR historian to be listening to this podcast, there's a good chance a piece of the past you've been on the hunt for is in my shop. I'm constantly on the hunt for apparel and collectibles from all genres and eras of motorsports, so whether it be cup cars, dirt modifieds, dragsters, or monster trucks, I've probably got something for you. Check out my inventory at speedwaytsj.etsy.com and be sure to follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens for the newest items as soon as they drop and for a peek at what I keep for my own collection. As a special thank you to listeners of this show, just enter scene at checkout for 10% off. Speedwaytsj.etsy.com. That's speedwaytsj.etsy.com.
the August 19th, 1982 issue of Grand National Scene. There wasn't a cup race the weekend before this issue was released. So you guys had to come up with something to fill that week's newspaper. And I think you did a pretty doggone good job of that. Well, I appreciate that. I don't remember quite how we did it, (laughs) but we knew we had to do it and had to do it well. The outside cover on this issue features photos of rookies, of rookies, Mark Martin and Jeff Bodine, which teased to a photo spread on Mark and Jeff and several other first-year drivers on the inside. But Steve, there is something pretty significant about this cover. Do you know what it is? Uh, probably not. I know that Jeff Bodine won rookie of the year that year. Might have something to do with it. It was the very first time that Mark Martin or Jeff Bodine appeared on the cover of scene. How about that? Very first time. There was a letter to the editor in this issue from Charlene Bingman, who was from High Point, North Carolina but was living and working in King Khalid military city in Saudi Arabia. And he said that he had been a race fan since Bill France senior started NASCAR. And Charlene said, I sure look forward to your paper every week. Even if I do get it two weeks late, my wife mails it to me as soon as she gets it. So scenes coverage, even back then, was worldwide, truly worldwide. Yeah, we had quite a few readers who were overseas, uh, most of them with the military. We were very pleased, of course, that they read our paper, even when they got it so late. Your column in this issue dealt with a conversation that you'd apparently had with a race fan, and that fan wanted you to put together an all-star race team. And money was no object. You could have whoever and whatever you want. And you wrote in this column, in my imagination, I hopped aboard my Learjet and flew off to my plush offices in the World Trade Center in Mm. Manhattan. (laughs) Plopping down behind my huge mahogany desk, I took out a pad and sterling silver pen and began to list the people who would make up my Winston Cup team. Now, of course, offices in the World Trade Center really got my attention. Well, I guess so. (laughs) But for the purposes of this show, let's come up with our all-time teams. All right. All right. Who is your driver? All-time driver. Who are you going to put behind the wheel of your car? Well, you got to put in Dale Earnhardt, in my opinion. I mean, there's no question that he was a very talented and skilled driver. But what I liked about him as well was his influence in the garage era and with NASCAR. He had power. To go along with talent. You wrote at the time, Darrell Waltrip looms as the first choice because of his skill on various tracks and his burning desire to win. But Darrell will be instructed that at times he will simply have to shut up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you'd have to tell him that, no question. <laughs> Steve Wade, bring it down the hammer, man. <laughs> yeah, Darrell, shut up. <laughs> You then continued and said Bobby Allison would be the first choice if he were Waltrip's age. His talent is legendary, and he handles himself well in public. He would, however, also have to accept the fact that he's working for me, and that might mean 
he can't make a sportsman race in Boise, Idaho. Steve, we got Kyle Larson on line one with a response to that comment. <laughs> Wait a minute, Kyle. This is years ago. <laughs> Team owners didn't really like the idea of their drivers competing in other outside events. The big fear was injury. And I seem to remember that Bobby Allison got injured driving a race that was not a NASCAR race. Now, I'm not talking about Pocono where he got severely injured and his career came to an end. It was before that. And I'm sure there was a non-NASCAR short track event. I think he got injured. And that was the reason why most team owners back in those days, if not all, didn't really like the idea of risking their driver's injury in a non-NASCAR race. This show has always been about the sport's past meeting its present. If you are a car owner today, knowing what you know, and all the experience that you've had and all the things that you've seen over the years, would you go to Kyle Larson and say, you got to concentrate on cup only? Would you tell him that? Probably not, because I don't think Kyle would drive for me if I told him that. <laughs> you know what? That's probably a pretty good point there. Well, I think Kyle can do whatever he wants. Certainly he can do it as far as Rick Hendrick is concerned. That being the case, I don't think team owners are quite as rigid about that condition as they used to be. You then wrote, Dell Earnhardt has all it takes, but he might find it difficult to learn that once in a while, he'll have to back off in order to be around at the finish. Well, now, a lot of people felt that way about Dale. This is 1982, you know. He's just getting started and is a little rambunctious. <laughs> you also added... I simply cannot, for all of my wealth, afford Richard Petty. <laughs> and I'm not convinced he wants to play the game that much longer. Well, he played for 10 more years. <laughs> Shows you what I knew. If you can't afford Richard Petty, I dang sure can't. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to go with David Pearson. Wise choice. I believe that's a pretty doggone good bet right there. What kind of car are you going to run? You said in your column that you were going to go with a Buick. So, <laughs> so you can still pick a Buick, but you can have any car that you want right now. Right now. Right any now. other cars right now. Throughout history. Oh, throughout history, huh? Yes. Chevrolet. Simple. Give me Richard Petty's Plymouth Superbird at Daytona and Talladega and a Petty Enterprises Dodge Charger everywhere else. Well, let me remind you that Richard Petty changed to Chevrolet and he had to because the Dodgers simply weren't running about that time. Who's your crew chief going to be? At that time, it was Jake Elder. Right. Anybody you want now, who you got? I'm not talking about today's crew chief. I'm talking about all time. All time. All time. Dale, Dale Lemon. I'm going to go with Buddy Parrott because if I ever got in a post-race scuffle, he would very gladly have my back. <laughs> <laughs> I hate to add that Dale would too. I know he's had mine. He's had my back a few times over the years. I'm 82 years old and I still got one good butt kicking I, left in me. That's <laughs> <I, I> Dale. <laughs> Who is your engine builder? You said Waddell Wilson. Stay with Waddell Wilson. I'm not changing. I'm going to take Smokey Eunuch. You want to cheat, huh? Hey. <laughs> If you ain't cheating, you ain't trying. <laughs> <laughs> hey, 
Who's your pit crew? Who is your jack man? Well, that's a tough choice. As a matter of fact, all of these are going to be tough choices because I'm not sure who the uh, pit crewmen were over the years. There were so many of them that came and went for different teams. However, when it comes to the jack man, a couple come to mind. First, Junior Johnson. Yep, that's what I said. Team owner Junior Johnson jacked his own cars. Now, the other one, this may surprise some people, but the other one, Delano Wood. He was the jackman for the Wood Brothers. Jackman on other team would take three, four, five times to jack that car up, slam that handle down three, four, five times. Delano inevitably did it in two. One, two, and the car was up. And nobody could figure out why. Because Delano was a fit guy, no question about it, but he wasn't a strong man by any means. Found out later that, as usual, the Woods had done some technological improvements. That was a hydraulic jack. That's why he could manage it in only two strikes. That makes Delano pretty well unique among jackmen. I'm going to go with David Smith. I like who, him too. Who was the jackman for Dell Hart's Flying Aces and Junkyard Dogs pit crews for so many years. And the thing I would like about David, if he's my jack man, we could run the race. And then afterwards he could pray for me <laughs> <laughs> and would. Yeah, it absolutely would. Who's your front tire changer. All right. When it comes to the tire changing guys, I can think of a couple that could do anywhere. Now, one of them is guess what? Leonard Wood. He was the crew chief for the Wood Brothers, but he changed tires. And you know, this guy, the most flamboyant tire changer of them all was Joey Knuckles. I don't think he had any problem changing tires on any side at any location. And those are the guys that I most remember for tire changers. Okay. Well, you go ahead and take Leonard Wood because I was going to pick Joey Knuckles. <laughs> <laughs> to round out the tire changers, I'm going to take Will Lind who was also on Dell Earnhardt's Flying Aces slash Junkyard Dogs team. If nothing else, you could recognize him because he had that curly perm hair <laughs> back in the day. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> and he was a whale of a tire changer. Who is your gas man? Well, there were several of them that did that job very well. One of them, though, became a real character in NASCAR. He was funny and he was talented when it came to filling up that car. And that was Hinky Eanes who worked many years with Travis Carter and the Skull teams. All right. I'm going to take Jamie Bishop. <laughs> There's something fishy about this. <laughs> <laughs> because by the time we got through with the race weekend, he would have scrounged up enough discarded sheet metal and other assorted memorabilia. We could have sold it all. And we, at that point, could have afforded to go to the next two or three races. <laughs> so Jamie is my gas man. Steve, there was a note in the scene on the circuit section that a movie called Stand On It was going to conclude filming in a couple of weeks at Darlington. What was the film called when it was actually released? Rick, I do not remember. I do remember Stand On It being a book that was very popular at the time. Stroker Ace. Oh, is that it? Stand On It was supposedly authored by Stroker Ace. <laughs> I have a copy of Stand On It by Stroker Ace. I never realized until you just told me that it became the movie Stroker Ace. Now, I have never read it. I have never seen a copy, but since it turned out to be such a fantastic movie, 
I think I might have to go out and find myself a copy and give that a read through and see what I think. Well, Rick, I'm not sure I agree with you when you say fantastic movie. <laughs> I remember when it premiered in Charlotte, Burt Reynolds and Lonnie Anderson were on stage and they spoke to the audience. And Burt Reynolds said, now, y'all not going to expect this movie to win any Academy Awards, are you? <laughs> <laughs> well, Lonnie Anderson was there. What else do you need? <laughs> well, <laughs> you make a point. <laughs> <laughs> This issue rolled off the presses 39 years ago. And certainly you and the rest of the gang at Grand National Scene had no idea of what a podcast was or could be, or, or even if it was ever going to be a thing. So I think it's absolutely astounding that for an episode of the Scene Vault podcast, where we have just talked about a bunch of different unusual sponsors that race teams have had over the years. There's a pretty extensive feature in this issue by Gary McCready on what racing meant when it came to exposure and sales for new sponsors. And Steve, again, I picked this issue completely at random. And so there was just such a connection between the unusual sponsors that we discussed and this feature on basically the business side of what sponsorship meant to the actual companies. I think if I remember correctly, one of Gary's points was that to get the most out of racing, a sponsor just couldn't come along and put his name on the quarterback. They had to spend money in public relations and marketing and everything it took to promote the product. That meant they had to have a budget twice as much as what they paid simply to be the sponsor. It had to be the equal of that budget, if not more. That meant hiring people, getting people out of the field, having product given away the whole nine yards. Winston did that, and that's one reason why that company managed to stay around as a part of NASCAR sponsor for decades. I believe the term for that would be activation. <laughs> okay. You're going to activate that sponsorship, and many, many companies have done a great, great job at that time and time again. We have heard from listeners who enjoy our show because of the memories that it brings back for them. And again, time and time again, I have talked about how much I love going through all these old newspapers. I actually laughed out loud when I went through this one and came across a feature about DK Ulrich and all the drivers who he'd had driving for him in the last year or two before this issue came out in 1981, Steve, 18 different drivers drove for DK. I did not know that 18 different drivers. DK himself drove his car, Rick Baldwin, Joe Boer, Chuck Bound, Elliot Forbes, Robinson, Tommy Gale, Cecil Gordon, Terry Herman, Kevin Housby, Don Hume, Slick Johnson, Rick Noop. Sterling Marlin, Dick May, Bob McElwee, Ronnie Thomas, Tim Richmond, and Al LaQuasto. Now, one thing about that that I do know, several of those drivers, not all, but several of those drivers could provide a sponsorship for sure. DK. That's one of the reasons he took them on. They were bringing money to the table. Right. Not much, but just enough. Pay attention to that last name there. Al LaQuasto, 
because it's important to the story. Do you remember Al Acosta? Rick, I have to tell you, I do remember the name, but I don't think I ever met Al Laquasto. Well, there is a picture with this story of DK talking to Al Laquasto in the garage at Pocono in 1981. And that's even more important. So here is my Al Laquasto story. <laughs> my buddy, Chase Whitaker. Oh, he of the Molly black gold photos <laughs> and tweets and everything. If you're on Twitter and you have any interest in NASCAR history whatsoever, you have probably come across Chase through his Twitter handle at Too Much Country. That's Chase. Oh, oh yeah. Now I know. That's Chase. That's Chase. I would put Chase up against anybody in the world in a petty family trivia contest up to and including Richard and Kyle. Chase Whitaker is a Richard Petty fanatic. He loves him some petties. He also loves him some Schaefer beer. Oh, now I definitely know who he is. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Richard Petty fans are a dime a dozen evidently, but Schaefer beer fans. Now they stand out. The short version of the story is that every race that chase attends with his buddies, they all have themselves a Schaefer beer at the beginning of the weekend. <laughs> And if you're new to the club, you even get to autograph a, a metal Schaefer beer sign. And if Chase is a petty historian, he has also become one of the Schaefer brand. I'll tell you what, I don't know where Chase is from, but I do know that a Schaefer beer is really popular in Philadelphia and the other areas of Pennsylvania. I don't know how big it is down south. But up in that part of the country, uh, you see that name, Schaefer Beer, a lot. Well, Chase lives in Franklin, Tennessee, just south of Nashville. Okay. So I think that what Chase enjoys is the chase. <laughs> <laughs> He's got to go on an odyssey to find himself some Schaefer Beer. Well, guess who sponsored Al Laquasto at Pocono in July of 1981? Oh, no, really? Schaefer beer. <laughs> <laughs> well, then it became Chase's mission in life to track down a photo of Al Laquasto's car sponsored by Schaefer on the track at Pocono. And one of Chase's buddies, Ron Willard, they joined in the search and they went after everybody that they could think of. They got in touch with DK and they got in touch with Joe Mattioli at Pocono. and. At the time, I had a NASCAR history website called Stock Car Racing History Online, and Chase emailed me there. And this has been 10, 12 years ago. And I couldn't find anybody who had anything. Well, then Ron emailed me a few weeks later, and it was on. And I went to the Pocono issue of Grand National Scene that covered that race and there wasn't a photo of Al Schaefer car in the issue, but David Shobat's name was all over the issue as the photographer. And David had died by this time of a heart attack. So I contacted David's brother, Brian, and I also contacted Brian's business partner, Nigel Kinraid. And Nigel put me in touch with the people who were administering David's photo archive after he died. And I did get a photo of Al's car on the track, 
but it was very heavily watermarked. So I did come up with the photo that they had been chasing, but it was watermarked. Well, then we got back in touch with DK and finally DK started digging in all his stuff and boom, we had ourselves a color photograph of Al LaQuasto's car on the track at Pocono and sponsored by Schaefer beer. We got the Holy grail, buddy. <laughs> you guys are on a mission. No doubt about it. <laughs> and DK summed things up pretty nicely. He said, I'm not sure if these guys are Al LaQuasto fans, race fans, beer fans, or all the above. <laughs> Everybody has some sort of mission. It sounds like an opportunity for them to go to races, drink beer, and BS. Who needs an excuse? <laughs> well, he makes a very good point. And I think that if they are not doing so already, the Schaefer people need to send old Chase a case a week because he's doing great work for them. Hey, this is Michael Fatback McSwain, and you're listening to me on the Scene Vault Podcast. Steve, we got an awesome review from Ambro C on iTunes, and he wrote, I'm 38 years old and have been a huge NASCAR fan since 1995. This show has done an awesome job catching up with icons of the sport that I grew up following, plus some from years before me being a fan and learning about some I knew nothing about. It was very weird. A couple of months ago, I had a random where are they now thought about Fatback McSwain. He was one of my favorite people in the sport growing up. Two days later, I came across this podcast to see that Rick had just interviewed him. I'd never heard about this podcast before. Awesome, powerful interview. And I've been hooked on the show ever since. I'm an over-the-road truck driver, so I listen to your shows to get me down the road. Keep it up, guys. It's fun. And that's what it's all about. We talk about, you know, information and nostalgia and things like that on this show. But in the end, Rick, it's supposed to be fun. So until the next time here on the Scene Vault Podcast, Boogity, boogity. Dad, stop it. Dad, shush it. I can't concentrate with you saying boogity, boogity all the time. Hey, Dad, could you do me a little favor? I'm trying to play a game here. Steve, finally. And Steve. And this week, we also. And this week, we also have new Patreon support from Charles. Charles. 